The advice and opinions expressed by the hosts of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. The advice and opinions expressed by the hosts of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Doreen Grandpichet. Dr. Doreen Grandpichet is a visionary in the field of autism. Now you can ask her questions on Ask Dr. Doreen. Good morning and welcome to Autism Live and to Ask Dr. Doreen. So thrilled to be back here with you. I'm Shannon Penrod. And as you can see, we have the fabulous, I got to go the other way. Uh, Dr. Doreen Grampichet is here with us. She's going to be answering your questions throughout the next hour. We are live. It is Wednesday. I got to check the date. It is June 16th, 2021. And we're so excited to be back. We've been off of live shows for a few days now and I always miss it. Uh, I miss being here with you guys live. I want to let you know that if you're watching us live, you can be interacting with me and better yet with Dr. Grampiche right now. You, can, you We're live right now on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, on our homepage, Autism Live, and about 10, 12, 13 other places as well. But I'll tell you, if you want to get your question read, the quickest, easiest way to do it live is to write into us now on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter. Um, those, those interact, you just write in on YouTube or Facebook or Twitter, and it shows up right here in our stream so that, um, we can both Dr. Grampiche and I can see the comments. Um, I will tell you that we have people who have written in questions throughout the last week and throughout the night on our home site, which is autism-live.com. And we usually start out with some of those questions, but, um, and you can be writing those in. It's just, uh, that 
if you do it beforehand, good evening, Nasser, so thrilled that you're here. Uh, if you do it beforehand, I usually get to one or two questions at the top of the show. We also have our entire library of videos. We are now in our 10th year of doing Autism Live. So our library of videos are available to you on aut uh, autism-live.com and also on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash autism live. And you can go back through old videos and see, you know, the whole library of what we've done in the past. Uh, I do want to let you know that if you want to watch us recorded, we are also available as a podcast. In fact, we are the number one rated autism podcast worldwide. We are available as a free download wherever you get your podcasts. We're saying hello to John Curtis, who's saying hello to me and to Dr. Doreen. Dr. Doreen, we're so thrilled that you are here. For those of you who don't know Dr. Doreen, she is a, a true expert in the field of autism. She's the founder of the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. She is also the founder of a wonderful charity, Autism Care Today. She's been working in this field far more than her skin would let you know. Uh, <laughs> and has worked with individuals as young as babies and up through senior citizens. One of the things that we particularly love about her is that she sees individuals on the autism spectrum as full and total people, as individuals, and sees the family as an individual unit and helps to support all of those people. She also sees around corners. I think that she has a little bit of that, that you know she can see things before they come on the horizon and other people can see them. So good morning, Dr. Grampy Shea. Good morning, Shannon. It's always lovely to be back and doing the show with you. So uh, very nice, excited to answer some questions and good morning to all of our viewers. It is always my thrill and my privilege to be here with you. So I've, I've missed you. Our first question this morning comes to us from a BCBA who says, I frequently watch your show. I was listening to Dr. Doreen speak on the June 9th show regarding the possible link between toxins, the redox reaction and autism. Uh, and, and they said, if I understood correctly, the toxins prevent the respiratory cycle from functioning optimally. Is that the case? Uh, if that is the case, would a hyperbaric chamber be an effective method to assist individuals on the spectrum? And they said, thank you for a great and informative show. Thank you for writing in. We love our BCBAs. That's wonderful. Yeah. And I love the fact, Shannon, that some of our BCBAs are beginning to go down that journey that I think I went down maybe 20 somewhat years ago, right? Which is like starting to understand that we have to learn more than just how to manage behavior. And we have to understand really kind of the underlying causes and the biology a little bit better. So I love it when our BCBAs ask questions like that. Um, so, so to answer that question, First, I want to refer this BCBA, and hopefully they will uh, watch our show and uh, know that there is, um, you know, I funded a series of talks that will be happening every year at the, uh, the very, very large BCBA conference, which is called the Association for Behavior Analysis International Conference. It just finished. It's always uh, on uh, Memorial Day weekend, and uh, and so the the second talk, the first talk was this year because 
There's now an endowment uh, that funds uh, medical doctors, physicians who are also scientists. Um, and each year they will come and give a presentation about the biology and the etiology of autism and kind of help our BCBAs understand a little bit more um, of how kind of the biochemistry of an individual can interact with uh, all the symptoms that we see that that we work on and that we treat as behaviorists. So the first talk was done by uh, Dr. Richard Fry, MD, PhD, and it was a wonderful, wonderful talk. And um, uh, we'll see who we select next year. But every year there will be uh, a medical doctor who will be explaining all of the everything that we've learned about uh, the biology of autism. Now. Quickly answering the question that was brought up. Um, so no, so there was a little bit of a misunderstanding, I think, there. So the redox cycle has to do with detoxifying from all the toxins in our environment. Um, when we are not able to detoxify as fast as we are exposed to toxins, uh, then our entire existence becomes a little bit too overloaded with toxicity. Uh, that toxicity overload affects people in different ways. The primary way that it affects us is that our body continues to work to detoxify, and therefore it strains the immune system. And um, that's very, very important because... Uh, you know, toxicity and when we're not able to detoxify causes inflammation all over the, the, the body. Um, and that inflammation, uh, especially when it's in the gastrointestinal tract, will very seriously prevent the immune system from working the way that it should, because most of our immune functioning is in the gastrointestinal tract. Um, it will, of course, cause other issues as well. And as we know, many of our children struggle with GI inflammation, gastrointestinal inflammation, right? They have a lot of issues with diarrhea and constipation and, of course, uh, a lot of pain that goes along with that. And, and then if you can imagine that, you know, everything that we eat uh, go, has to go through a functioning gastrointestinal tract for its nutritional value to, uh, to reach all the different parts of the body and the brain, right? If we're not digesting food properly, um, then of course, uh, it can, all, all the nutrients are not, are not being received and processed the way that they're intended to be. So all, it's a pretty complicated process that our children go through, and that is how redox affects us. Now, I think what I was par perhaps also referring to was that depending on the age that we are most uh, overloaded with toxins, uh, different aspects of brain functioning will be affected, right? So... If it's a very, very early in the life of an, an infant uh, where they are overloaded with toxins, then obviously brain development at, for prior to the age of one is very, very different than brain development, let's say, at the age of five, right? So um, the growth of, of nerve cells, neurons, axons, dendrites, all the parts of the nerve cells 
um, is going to be affected, and it depends on on where in the aging of an individual the most uh, toxicity occurs. It's a little complicated, but hopefully that was uh, an adequate explanation. Now, the question, Shannon, was kind of interesting because I guess the portion that the individual asked about was uh, hyperbaric chambers. I'm not quite sure how the connection was made to hyperbaric chamber, but I do want to say in their, in their thinking, but I do want to say that um, there was a time, I'd say, when was that? About maybe 15 years ago. I, I mean, time goes by so fast now, 10 or 15 years ago, where uh, hyperbaric chambers were very popular. And the concept, theoretically, the concept was kind of interesting because uh, the idea was that with a hyperbaric chamber, inflammation in the GI tract could be reduced. And if inflammation was reduced, then this might result in, you know, processing of food in a better way. Um, <clears throat> there were also, parents were paying tons and tons of money to go through uh, hyperbaric dives. That's how they're called. So, um, and I was hearing from families that they really felt there was a significant change in their children, some families. So at CARD, we decided to uh, run two studies, which I have to say were extremely expensive. I'm, I'm very uh, glad that we were able at that time to afford this and do this study. We actually um, got 20 hyperbaric chambers across our sites. Um, we did two sets of studies, to be honest with you. Um, we did one in our Texas sites where we looked at individuals uh, one by one very, very carefully. And we did another study in uh, California where we had 20 chambers across our clinics. And we had children taking the recommended dosage of, of dives, in other words, going into the chamber and receiving hyperbaric oxygen. Um, and for, I don't remember the duration, but whatever the recommended duration was, which I think was something like 40 hours, 30 hours. I honestly don't remember now, <clears throat> but we did what was recommended by the physicians who were recommending HBOT treatment, hyperbaric oxygen treatment. And um, we, did, we had control groups who actually went into the chamber and the chamber was inflated, but no um, oxygen or pressure was given. And then we had uh, the experimental group where children actually went in and received the appropriate amount of oxygen. And I have to say, I went into it uh, being hopeful because there were parents saying that this is something effective for their children. But unfortunately, uh, at the end of the day, we found absolutely no difference uh, between the children who had received the HBAR treatment and those who had not. Um, in fact, we measured across so many different areas, like I can't even tell you, <clears throat> everything from, um, you know, uh, <clears throat> memory to attention to uh, speech to social behavior. I mean, we measured everything before and after, and there was absolutely no change. Um, there was a change 
because we had our therapists also going in with the children to keep them occupied for the duration of, I think it was 30 minute sessions. And uh, the only change that was evident was uh, uh, some of the therapists reported their own skin had improved. Now, hyperbaric oxygen is actually very good for acne and that type of thing. So that was the only finding. And so we published both of those studies and uh, several of the medical conferences were, who were at that time promoting hyperbaric oxygen stopped promoting it. And in fact, the company that uh, uh, sold those chambers uh, was not very happy with us, but we were, uh, we were, you know, ethical and published our results. So I do not want anyone out there to think, and things may have changed, I don't know, this was, as I said, ten, more than 10 years ago, but at least um, from our own findings, uh, hyperbaric oxygen did not have an, uh, any kind of improvement um, on the symptoms of autism. Can I tell you one of the questions that has come up since then and get your reaction yeah. to it was that those, correct me if I'm wrong on any of the assumptions, this is just what somebody brought up to me. When CAR did that study, you were using the soft shell mm -hmm. HBOT tanks, which is what most of the parents were being sold, which were pretty expensive. That's but correct. that they were the soft shell and that I've heard from at least one HBOT person who said, but I wish they'd done it in the hard tank, which those are places that you can only get um, the, the, at a facility. It's way too cost prohibitive for the average person to afford one of those. And, um, and like hospitals have hard shell. And what I was told was that that gives a different level of HBOT. So, um, they always wanted me to be clear that it was the soft shell that you guys found. Is that accurate, though, from your perspective? That's that no, that's absolutely correct. And <clears throat> those are the things that are very important. So the soft shells, the reason we used the soft shells were because uh, that was the primary uh, source of hyperbaric oxygen being given in those days. And yes, you're right. I mean, like there were so many parents at that point, Shannon, who would you know, put a second mortgage on their house so they could afford to purchase a soft shell. These soft shell chambers, which I still actually have one, um, cost around $20,000 and people were doing everything they could to get one in their own home and, and use it. Um, and that's why we did it because it was really um, kind of, people were under the impression that this is going to be a miracle cure for their child. And I wanted, and I was hopeful that it would, if anything, help the child attend better, and therefore would improve our ability to teach the child. Those soft shells, uh, pro, pro, they provide 23% more compressed oxygen. The hard shells are 100% more compressed oxygen, and so there is a an absolute difference in the two. The hard shells are uh, several hundred thousand dollars and they're only per in, uh, as you said, hospitals or uh, centers uh, that were, because you have to understand that, that the whole concept of HBOT is because of um, divers. When divers uh, come up from uh, deep water too fast, they can have what's called the bends, which means that an oxygen bubble can actually go to their brain and kill them. 
And so when this is happening, divers will often be put in one of those hard shell chambers in order to eliminate the bubble, right? So those are in very specific locations where there's like diving hospitals, you know, those types of things. And uh, there are still hyperbaric um, centers, I guess. I know there's one in Orange County. There are a lot of centers where, and people still do take their children there. And I, there's no harm in, in it. I mean, the cost of it is is a little bit difficult for people, but oxygen, there's not, it's not going to harm you to receive oxygen, obviously. And the concept of receiving a lot of oxygen early on, is, it will help uh, improve growth of, of nerve cells. No question, oxygen is good for us. Um, so those types of things are absolutely positive. But it isn't. It, a lot of the claims that were being made then were that you know you go in a soft chill and you do thirty dives or I think thirty sixty dives something like that, and you know you've lost all the symptoms of autism, and that that just wasn't true. Right there we go. Now earlier I said that you work with a right wide variety of individuals on the spectrum, and John wrote it and said, "Do you also uh, is it for adults who are high functioning as well?" Absolutely. I mean. In fact, we currently have a lot of adults that we work with who are high functioning. And uh, the way that our program works is that we basically will individualize the program. So uh, it's not like specifically focused on one thing or another. Uh, we will do some activities or groups that are meant for groups of individuals, but you know, you'll have a high functioning adult who will come in and say, I really want uh, help with figuring out how to date someone. Um, and then you'll have another adult whose main issue is, um, you know, I'm having a hard time at, in college because I can't really organize myself or, or regulate my schedule. Um, or you'll have another high functioning adult who will say, I still have a really hard time with work and, uh, you know, I don't know how to interact with my colleagues. So everyone has different issues and um, we have a system at CARD that we built over the years. Uh, it's our second skills platform. Our first skills platform is for children and the second one is skills living, which is for adults. And it is really focused on things like this. It's focused on an assessment. It starts with an assessment. It has to do with kind of figuring out where you need help. What are the areas that the individual needs help? Now, and remember with adults, I mean, you have the entire spectrum. So you can have an adult who is extremely affected by autism and cannot communicate, is extremely frustrated, um, and therefore has become uh, aggressive or self-injurious and just extremely uh, disturbed. And uh, so that individual will need a lot of different types of uh, uh, help and support. So that individual might need help with functional communication, uh, learning how to communicate using an iPad, uh, learning how to express their needs, uh, learning how to uh, you know, make food for themselves, like basic skills. Whereas a high functioning adult, as I said, might have completely different issues. And so all of those are, are things that we help and work with. And since you brought that up, I'm gonna give our, our skills and IBT update um, for today. 
uh, skills and an IBT. IBT stands for the Institute for Behavioral Training. These are really useful tools uh, that are that are useful in a lot of different directions, like that skills living curriculum program that Dr. Grand Pichet was just talking about. And each week in the pandemic during COVID, they've been offering free things to our audience to help them to be able to do the things that they want to be able to do. So this week, for ABA parents and guardians, they're offering a free uh, IBT, Institute for Behavioral Training e-learning, that is specifically for parents and caregivers. It's called Parent Useful Strategies for the Home. And I love this because even if you were going back to school for a while, now it's summer and everybody needs some help at home. How do you set up the home to work efficiently and effectively? It's great e-learning and it's free to you right now. I'm going to give you a phone number in just a second. For teachers who are now enjoying, I hope, a summer break, uh, they're offering the e-learning educator module behavior management. What a great thing to do over the summer when you're not dealing with this, because I'm a former teacher and we all know if you don't have the behavior under control, then you're going to have a hard time getting to the teaching. And this behavior management um, course helps not only with autism, but with anybody that's having a behavior issue and how to deal with it in a positive way. That's free to educators right now. Get your pencils ready. I'm going to give you a phone number in just a second. They are also continuing to offer their RBT, which stands for Registered Behavior Technician 2.0 training course. That's free to a parent or caregiver on a case-by-case basis. That's a 40-hour e-learning program so that you would learn all of the things that a beginning therapist learns. It is the first step towards becoming a registered behavior technician to take that course. It's really great. And then also they're offering a 10% discount on any skills product. So that includes the skills um, curriculum, or if you were interested in that skills living that Dr. Grand Pichet was talking about, which is for individuals that are for. 14 and up, I think you can start to transition at 12. Correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Graham Shane. Um, and then uh, the phone number for all of these free things, 877-975-4559. Again, 877-975-4559. That gets you through to skills and you can tell them that you saw uh, this on Autism Live. You can use my name if you want to. You can say you want the friends and family program. All of that is uh, available to you to help you with what you need to know. I don't know how much longer they're going to be offering the free pandemic as the world opens back up. Um, this was specifically during COVID. So if you were thinking about taking that RBT course, that's a $440 value, you guys, which is crazy to begin with, because what you learn in it is worth way more than $440. But if you are like, I want to know what these ABA people know, I want to be a more effective caregiver, you know, BCBA, whatever, you know, the BCBAs have already done that. That's silly. But uh, it's really great. It helped me so, so, so very much. Um, so call that number and get hooked up with that because I don't know how much longer it is. Uh, okay, so uh, we've got some questions live. Did you want to add anything to that, Dr. Grampuche? I just talked all over you. No, no, that was perfect. Thank you. Okay. Um, so we have a question. Um, 
we have somebody who was recently diagnosed as an adult in 2019 as high functioning. Uh, they also had a diagnosis of ADHD. It would be beneficial throughout my life to have more compassionate people to work with me than harsh people, especially in today's world. And uh, I would particularly uh, like to participate in a seminar on educating people about experiences I've gone through and my current situation. I don't know if there's a question in there, um, but I think we all could stand for more compassion. Go ahead, Dr. Absolutely. I mean, I'll, I'll say that that probably holds true for all of us. And we all kind of feel like there would be, uh, you know, more room in the world for, for compassion. But I do also want to say that things have improved quite a bit. Um, you know, I mean, there is more compassion in the world. Uh, if you go back and think about the fact that there, you know, many, many, many years ago, and we're not talking about just disability, compassion towards disabilities, but we're talking about race and gender and all these types of things. And I think the world in general, or at least living in the United States, has changed quite significantly over the past 20 years or so. And there is a lot more understanding and acceptance of all of those things. Uh, people, I never thought that being someone who's been in the world of autism for over 40 years, as Shannon said, uh, it was viewed extremely differently 40 years ago uh, than it is now. Um, and there's a, a, a great deal of wanting to understand more um, I mean, this year alone, I did uh, presentations for two very large companies, Oracle and Surgical Care Affiliates, where the, all they wanted was to learn how to better accommodate their employees who are on the spectrum. So there is a, there, the world has changed and there's a great deal of, of uh, compassion coming and people are very, very interested in learning more. Um, there's, we still have a long way to go, um, but, you know, things have improved. I do want to say on the, the other side of it is also that, you know, and I, I don't have the experience of, of how, how people can be uh, not understanding or, as you say, harsh uh, towards you because of, of a diagnosis you might carry. But I do, you know, being a woman, being uh, from the Middle East, um, you know, I, I can understand that there are situations where we feel people might be too harsh towards us or might judge us in a different light. And in those cases, I always try to, maybe this is just the psychologist in me, but I hope that it will help uh, the individual who's written in as well. I think in those cases, it's always best to try to understand uh, the world from the perspective of the person who's being harsh. Um, people are all kind of born with the same level of compassion and love. Something happens along the way in our lives that makes us judgmental or uh, makes us have less of, of, of compassion or makes us be less patient, let's put it that way, or more fearful of others who are different. And it's a little bit, I think that's where we all have to focus when we feel someone is harsh towards us. You have to just try to figure out what could have happened to them 
that they're so afraid of the fact that I'm a little different. That might be helpful. Yes, um, because it goes both ways. And, uh, and often we find that, you know, the person who is being the loudest and mean to people is somebody who was bullied before, uh, doesn't excuse it. Um, but if, but if what we ultimately want to do is make it better, that's a part of what we need to know. Um, thank you so much for that. Vanessa has written in and said, my son is being denied his NROTC full scholarship. He's very accomplished and has overcome challenges and no longer meets the criteria for ASD and we need help. She goes on to mention that he's actually been a guest on the show before. And so it's lovely to have you back with us. Um, I don't, I don't know what you want to say, Dr. Grampiche, but I, if you wanted, I don't know what the requirements are for the NROTC full scholarship, but if you wanted to write specifically to me, I can certainly look into it, s.penrod at autism-live.com. But I wanted Dr. Grampiche to talk about the fact that, you know, sometimes our, our kiddos, as they, you know, make progress and become teens and adults, sometimes it's, it's a, a known phenomenon that they get to the point where they've made so much progress that they no longer qualify for an autism spectrum disorder diagnosis. Um, and then things change. I mean, you know, and what, what they have access to, they're in sort of that in-between place, Dr. Grampiche, where um, I still believe, like I'm just looking at my son. My son's brain functions differently than mine does. And, but it no longer functions in a way that's different that could be counted as a disability, mm -hmm. um, but it functions differently than mine. But, you know, there are things that he had access to before that he doesn't have access to because he doesn't have a disability. Um, but I think a lot of times people don't know that that's a possibility. And I think because it's not well known, there aren't enough services to help a family negotiate for how do you go from having a child that's deemed disabled to having a child that functions differently, but is not disabled. Do yeah, you want to talk yeah. about that at all? Absolutely. And I have to say that I always, um, when I see new parents, I always tell them that, you know, don't worry or be scared of the diagnosis because the, the main reason for the diagnosis is to access certain aspects of funding, including health insurance funding, right? Um, and so there, you know, you have certain needs and they are, I guess, severe enough to classify for a diagnosis. And that's really important to differentiate because let's, uh, I'll use a different example other than ASD. So let's talk about something like, let's say, anxiety. The majority of us have anxiety over one thing or another, right? You can't really, there are very, very few people who could truthfully say, I've never had anxiety. I don't get anxious about anything. We all experience a certain amount of anxiety. The difference between the level of anxiety that most of us experience and the individual whose diagnosis is something like generalized anxiety disorder is a lot. There's a big difference, right? And the main difference, is, first of all, for anything to be classified as a disorder, um, it has to be severe enough that it interferes with functioning 
uh, in two environments. Usually that that is, if it's a child, it would be at home and school. If it's an adult, it would be at home and at work. So, you know, I've used a, a pretty crass example in the past where I've said, you know, you can have someone who drinks a full bottle of scotch every day, but they are, uh, you know, wonderful to their family ever and, and loved by their children and their wife and they go to work and they're fully functional. They just have a two hour period of blackout every day or whatever it is. It does not function as a, enough of a symptom or series of symptoms to classify under a disorder. It just doesn't. Same thing with anxiety, same thing with ASD. So many of us will have some of the features of ASD. For instance, uh, some of us might really love to have order in our universe, right? We want things in a particular order. Uh, many of us get very upset if uh, transitions occur without us being aware. Um, many of us are uh, sensitive to, I, I know I am, like when I have had a very tough day or a long day and I'm sitting in an environment where there's multiple sources of noise, like, uh, you know, TV on and my kids are talking and there's background music or whatever, I, I, I can't handle it. My brain starts to just shut down and I need to like leave the room and calm myself, right? But these are at a different level than individuals experience who are actually given the diagnosis of ASD. Um, you know, there are many language delays and language disorders or inabilities, um, but they don't, it's not the same as having uh, the, the level of language disability that is in autism, in ASD. For something to be, for an individual to classify for diagnosis, they have to have specific number of uh, symptoms within specific subcategories of behavior. So, okay, now you have those and you get the diagnosis and you, you benefit from the funding that exists. And if you do the right thing, and if you receive therapies and treatments and you work really, really hard for many years, you're gonna lose some or most of those symptoms. That's the whole goal of therapy is to get rid of those issues or to make them mild enough that they're manageable. And once you hit that level, yes, your diagnosis is no longer applicable. It will not apply. Someone will remove that diagnosis. And then it becomes tough, as Shannon said, because there are certain aspects of, of life, maybe funding, maybe other things, um, that you were pri previously had access to, and you no longer have access to those things, and it becomes like, almost feels unfair. Why do I not have access to those things anymore? And, and Shannon is right. There isn't, unfortunately, uh, and sometimes you still have that need. Shannon, you know what this reminds me of is years ago, before there was uh, health insurance coverage, a lot of our patients would receive funding from regional centers in California. Regional centers are the Department of Developmental Services, and they would provide funding for support. And it was very unfortunate because if you went from having a diagnosis of ASD or autism, this autistic disorder was, is what it was called in those days, um, and your symptoms became uh, mild enough that your diagnosis changed 
to either Asperger's or pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified, PDD-NOS, which is kind of like the more higher functioning version of ASD, then you no longer qualify for regional center funding. It was exactly the same process here. And we would always have to be very cautious because we felt that our, our, our children needed support, just not as much support perhaps. And so the funding system wasn't set up appropriately. I can see the same thing happening here. It almost feels unfair to lose access to certain types of um, grants or scholarships or funds or so on. And perhaps in this particular case, it was something completely wrong. I, we don't know the details here. But what I do- some know, more just now, and she said, we're not seeking funding or services, but he's wanting to serve his country. Unbelievable, so, amazing, amazing. Yeah. And that just makes no sense to me. And I hope that they do write into you, Shannon, and that we can figure out how we can help them. Um, I will tell you that there, the current policy with our armed services is that if you had a diagnosis of autism, that you, there is a process that you can appeal, but they will not admit you. Um, and they and the, and the United States government and their armed forces do not recognize um, that you could have the diagnosis and then no longer qualify at, for it as a disorder. They don't they don't um, recognize that. But I I do know personally people who have been able to get past it with a petition um, and there's a process. So please write to me and I'll, uh, I potentially can hook you up with somebody that you can talk to whose son went through it and is now serving in the Marine Corps. And, and how amazing that your son actually, uh, wants to serve his country and, and what an unfortunate situation that they're not allowing him to. I think it's, this scenario kind of falls under the you know, unfortunately, all, um, I guess, mental disorders, you know, like uh, autism falls in, into a book that's called a Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So I was just looking because I think mine is somewhere in this office, but... Doorstop. <laughs> exactly. The DSM, or Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, uh, you know, I think the, the military has always taken the, the position that if you are struggling with something that is, a, that is of mental health concern, the DSM-5, exactly, and four and three, all of them, the, the concern is basically that we don't want to put you in a situation that might make that worse. And so, you know, with veterans, especially the primary mental issue is PTSD, right? Post-traumatic stress disorder. And so in order to make sure that they don't uh, begin, a lot of mental disorders uh, become worse with stress. I, I mean, we all know that, right? Like when you have stress, your anxiety increases. When you have stress, your depression increases. When you have stress, your sleep disorder gets worse all those types of things. And I think the military is not understanding that although autism is in this book, it's a very different thing. And once you have uh, you know, gotten to a point where you no longer qualify for, these, for this diagnosis, you are probably not just 
as strong as everyone else mentally, you're probably actually quite stronger, to be honest. Like when I see with our children who recover, their resilience, their ability, their patience, their understanding, their uh, all of all of their their mental capabilities end up being quite strong, if not the same as their peers, even stronger. Absolutely, I agree. That's what I see. And they they said thank you so much. Uh, she wants to know: Is it discrimination? Um, Honestly, I don't know. I wouldn't know. Um, I just don't know enough about that. I, uh, yeah, I don't know either, but I know that there's a way around it. And I think that that's the thing to focus on if that's truly what he wants to do. So do write to me, s.penrod at autism-live.com. And let me see if I can't hook you up to some help. I want to say hello to Renee and Elvira and say, thank you so much for being here. They want to know, is an ABA center better than home? They're trying to get their son into a center, but it's a 50 mile drive. And they further go on to say they live in a rural area. So in-home services, uh, you know, while they would be great, they're a struggle because they're having a hard time hiring behavior technicians um, to come that far. So. Yeah, I understand. So yes, Elvira, or Renee and Elvira, we did a study a few years ago where we contrasted uh, rate of learning in our centers to those in homes and because you know all of ABA used to be in home and so we wanted to make sure we're in the right environment and all of our centers at that point we had like I don't know over a hundred clinics they were all set up in a sense that all our kids were getting therapy at home we then uh, the study was actually kind of surprising the results and the results showed that there was twice as much learning going on at the centers. Now, uh, you know, we, we can go back and we never did a follow-up to, to differentiate what's called a factor analysis and figure out exactly why. But we think, we hypothesize that some of the reasons were that the centers were, uh, the supervisors are present, the BCBAs are present at the centers. So... Uh, all the behavior technicians are on their best behavior and they're not doing anything wrong because if they do something wrong, then the supervisor kind of catches it. Um, that's one reason. And I think also at uh, home, there's a lot more distraction, right? Like the gardener is outside and the child gets distracted. The dog barks and the child gets that kind of stuff. So it's a little bit uh, less of a distraction when they're at the center. Now, that being said, you can absolutely produce a very uh, effective environment at home where there's fewer distractions and uh, you want to make sure that the therapists who are working with the child are very diligent and hardworking and they don't uh, muck around and waste time, but they're very focused. And you can connect with a BCBA who can, these days, it's so easy to have a camera in the corner of the room and just drop in and view the session. I mean, we do a lot of our supervision now through Zoom. Uh, so it's possible for our supervisors to see what's going on at all times. So that kind of thing is absolutely, it is possible for you to set up and make sure that your area, your, your child is receiving really high quality therapy at home. It is very hard right now to find therapists. I advise families who are in rural areas to look at high school grads, people who are just coming out of high school. This is the perfect time, right? Because kids are graduating and they're looking for jobs. 
and then to uh, go on our other company, which is the IBT website that Shannon mentioned, Institute for Behavioral Intervention. And if you are able to go there, then you can uh, get this individual that you hired uh, to be fully trained. They just look at videos and their supervision that's provided and they learn all of this. Now, in the meantime, you hopefully you have contact with a BCBA who can also guide them and help them and mentor them. Uh, but it is absolutely possible to set up a home program. Many of our families have successfully done that um, and their children have done incredibly well. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we got a lot of questions coming in. It always happens towards the end of the hour. Purple Lover says, hi, my son has a large vocabulary and his receptive language is really good. Uh, understands almost everything we say, but he doesn't use those words. Okay. So that's a really great question. And it is very, very important. Uh, it, so you have to work on expressive language and uh, you ha you've picked up on a very vital factor which is that our children uh, sometimes don't use their expressive language maybe because it's too hard um, in which case that means that they possibly have apraxia uh, of the tongue which essentially means that they would need a lot of practice with a speech therapist and you can help them as well with exercises that will uh, get them to move their tongue and mouth muscles and develop muscle tone in their mouth and tongue. I mean, look at how when you talk, just pay attention to the thousands of ways that your tongue, your mouth and your lips move in order to produce the words that we say. It's, it's a lot of uh, coordination and movement and it's pretty rapid and sometimes our children have a proxy their their muscle tone is low in their mouth and tongue and it's hard for them to make those sounds and to do the movements and they have to start practicing it in a very conscious way before it becomes fluent and before they can just do it automatically so that might be a reason another reason might be as you said they're not motivated uh, which could just be because you as a very good parent probably are good at predicting the things they want. Um, and if it's that, if that's the case, you need to uh, hold back on giving uh, things to the individual unless they use their voice and their words. It's hard. As parents, it's very, very hard for us. But it is the number one, uh, I guess, protocol that we use to motivate our children to actually use their words. It's called manding, teaching manding. Manding is when the child uses words to, to uh, request things, right? So you need to basically hold off on uh, giving things unless the uh, unless the child uses their their words that's the first one and then you need to you know require descriptive language i mean there's a series of of requirements that become a little bit harder and harder so that the individual is motivated to use their words um, and they only receive reinforcers if they use their words yeah i just want to say like we when you talk about it, if you haven't seen it, it's very hard to picture. 
But the example I always like to give is that when they were trying to get my son to start making sounds, they started with a, 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 a like a dollar's worth of bubbles. And, and what they do is they take and they blow the bubbles and the kids play with the bubbles and they're all happy. And they do this over and over and over again. And then the therapist starts, they, they'll, they'll hold up the thing and they'll go, buh, buh, bubbles. And then they blow, right? And they do this over and over and over again. And what they did with my son is at a certain point after they, this was like a pattern. He knew she was going to say, buh, buh, bubbles. And then there were going to be bubbles. But then she paused and she went, and his lips started to move in the position because he knew he wanted, it had to happen before the bubbles were going to happen. So eventually they got him to say, buh, buh, and they would blow the bubbles. And then they got him to say, buh, buh, and they would blow start out going, oh, I'm taking the bubbles away from you and you can't have them until you say bubbles. It's not like that. They, they shape it up so that they get a reinforcer and it's, they always keep it within the realm of what they can do. It's really a beautiful, elegant dance to watch them teach our kids to do it. There's nothing about it that is harmful to the kids. They thoroughly enjoy it and they get there. It's just amazing to watch. So I just wanted to put that in because people think, oh, you're taking something away from the child. It's not like that at all. No. Um, so super fun. Okay. Um, on to Rondonia says, my difficulty is knowing what my child's supposed to know at his age. Um, they want to know what skills. He's three years old. He's great in alphabets and numbers. He can do that in Portuguese and English, but he doesn't know how to cut papers, etc. That's great. So, uh, and it's funny because... Um, they're asking what skills and I, I kind of read that as what is skills and yeah. skills is the answer to what you're asking right now. So many years ago, I, I agree with you, Rondonia. My, my question was also, you know, our children are able to do so many things, but yet they are different from what their peers do, right? So they might be stronger in certain things, like letters and numbers are a great example. Like most three-year-olds don't know letters and numbers, right? So they know so much more. But on the other hand, they don't do basic things that let's say a three-year-old would do, like cutting paper. So how do I, how do I kind of produce a program that helps my child catch up with the norm. Well, I have to figure out what are the things that are age appropriate that my child is doing and what are the things that they're falling behind on, okay? So that's when I started to develop and write the skills program. And so what we did is first we started listing and skills is what Shannon had talked about before the website is up on, on the screen. It's www.skillsforautism.com. It's a big platform. What, what we first did is we listed every lesson that we ever thought of teaching any of our children. So it's thousands of lessons and everything from what, what we just talked about, manning. How, how do you teach a child to, to talk? How do you teach a child to imitate? How do you teach them to ask for things or to, to label things in their environment or talk about what just happened at school? Everything, right? And then after we listed it, I realized that, oh my God, it's like thousands of lessons. So every parent is going to come and say, what do I teach? Do I have to teach all of these things? Or what are the ones that are more relevant to my child? Like, what does my child need? 
So then I realized what is even more important and what we need is an assessment, right? Of, so that every child could be assessed. And so then we went into this massive multi-year project where we wrote questions that are for the parent to answer. And they are, then after we wrote all these questions, so the questions would be, you know, can your child request things? Can your child identify colors? Can your child cut with scissors? Whatever it is, thousands of questions having to do with all those lessons. And then I realized, well, we need to make sure that the, when, whenever we ask the question and the parent says no, it, maybe it's age appropriate that they don't know. So let's say if I'm asking a parent of a two-year-old, can your child use scissors to cut papers? I actually want the parent to say no, because no other two-year-old is using paper, using scissors, right? It's not something I want to teach yet. Instead, I want to teach that two-year-old maybe toilet training, which should probably be a little bit more important at that stage, right? Or language or whatever it is, social greetings or whatever it is. So what we did is we then went back and age normed every single skill. So what we have now in skills is everything that a child does, everything across the following domains, and it's a lot, guys. It's all language, cognitive skills, um, executive functioning skills, so planning, etc., play skills, social skills, um, motor, that would include gross and fine motor, adaptive, so um, things like, uh, you know, taking care of themselves, brushing their teeth, etc., um, and academic. And academic is where using, uh, it might even actually be under both academic and uh, under fine motor, uh, using scissors, for instance, to cut paper. So, and then we classified all those things under these headings and we age norm them. So we put them in the appropriate order of, of typical development. So when you have a, a let's say, three-year-old, you're only going to be focusing on things that are appropriate for typically developing three-year-olds, uh, not for, let's say, something that is a five-year skill, right? I'm not going to take a, a two-year-old, let's say, and teach them how to tie their shoes yet. Uh, I'm more focused on teaching the two-year-old how to request things they want those types of things. And it's across all those domains. So what you do, what you should do, Rantonia, is go on skills, uh, get a membership for just even a month, get on there. And it's not that expensive, Shannon. I don't know what it is now. It used to be like $70, I think, a month, yes. right? Something yes. like that. So say that you saw it on Autism Live and get a 10% discount. And you go in there and you answer these hundreds of questions about your child. In fact, I think Depending on the age of the child, obviously it's fewer questions, but if it's like an eight-year-old, it's like 20 hours worth of questions. There's a lot of questions and you can leave and come back, but you answer these questions and the questions are just, can your child do something, right? Yes or no. You say no, that entire skill will go into your child's kind of supermarket. And then later, when you've answered the whole thing, you can go back and look, and it'll tell you exactly what you're asking around doing it, which is in the area of language, all of these things have to be taught. 
In the area of motor, all of these things are behind age. In the area of social, all of these things. And so you'll see the entire thing that your child needs. And now you can go back and select, and the way that I would do it is I would select the younger skills first. So if your child is three and there are skills that he or she should have mastered or should have been demonstrating at, at typical development age two, I teach those skills first. I teach all the two-year skills. And that way you're catching up your child. Then you go on and you teach the three-year skills. And then you keep going with it until your child just catches up. And, and that's basically how you do it. And that's the, all of how all of our supervisors at CARD follow this platform called Skills. It's amazing. I've always said when you go to the mall, there's a map and it says you are here and then you can chart your course. And I always wanted to know where was the thing for autism? And it's that is just one of the like million things that skills does is if you do the assessment and give that investment in your child's education, and it is an investment of your time too, you will have a, a snapshot that shows you all these things that your child can do and it shows you what where the norm is where your child is and sometimes your child will be above the norm sometimes below it's really wonderful so again um Traven they're also asking for the IBT number so let's let's give them all those websites really quickly because we're out of time um because uh Renee and Elvira have said that they think they're going to try the card center and, and they want to get trained and what's the training called that's the institute for behavioral training there's their website, www.ibehavioraltraining.com. And then skills is sort of the companion and the, the curriculum that we were talking about to do the assessment. Um, and you've got the website there for skills. But let me give you the phone number that you need to get the discount, which is the single most important thing, right? Eight seven, if you're going to get it, why not get it cheaper? 877-975-4559. Nine seven five four five five nine. Vanessa, I see that you've already emailed me. Thank you so much. Um, okay, so all of that being said, uh, we'll be back next week. And it's such a thrill to with uh, ask Dr. Doreen tomorrow. I'm back, and Bonnie Yates is here, special education attorney. We've got jargon of the day. I'm also going to give my update. I actually went to Disneyland in COVID and have some updates about what that is like when you have kiddos on the spectrum. I'll be talking about that tomorrow. But Dr. Grampy-Shea, we thank you so much for your time. Uh, and uh, keep on, you guys are doing such a great job. Keep on trekking. We will be back tomorrow. Until then, give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now. Thank you.